Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca. Hey everyone, this is Courtney. Thanks for joining us for this episode of In Doubt, and I'm hoping that you're looking forward to this as much as I am. On today's episode, we're joined by Preston Sprinkle, who's a biblical scholar, an international speaker, and an author, and we're talking through the question, how do I talk to my gay neighbor? As you'll hear, Preston discusses topics that can sometimes be seen as controversial, and this is no different. There's certainly a lot of tension around the LGBTQ community, with misunderstandings from both sides of the debate. Christians often cast a stigma on the LGBTQ community, and much hurt and pain is associated with the church or with Christians for people who identify as LGBTQ. We're jumping into a topic that we recognize is sensitive, and I'm hoping that through this episode, you're able to take one step further in the conversation or at least play a part in becoming more informed in this discussion. Ultimately, the primary question turns into what is marriage, and Daniel and Preston take care to discuss what that means in terms of the secular society we live in and what that means directly from the Bible. So my hope is that you'd find this conversation informative and helpful. Returning to what the Bible says as we listen to Daniel and Preston Sprinkle. Welcome to In Doubt. My name's Daniel Markin. I'm joined today with Preston Sprinkle. How are you doing, Preston? I'm doing all right, man. All things considered, I'm doing fine. Good. Good to hear. Preston, for our audience who, who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know where you're from, what you do, and uh, tell us about your family, anything that you think is need to know. Yeah. Well, I'll try to be brief. Um, I'm 44 years old, married to my wife, been married coming up on 19 years. We have four kids together. Three are teenagers, uh, three girls and a boy. My, my son is 11 years old. Let's see, I've been a Christian since I was about 19. And most of that time has been spent either in Christian education, like pursuing education, um, or teaching in an educational environment. So I, I fell in love with studying the Bible and immediately wanted to uh, be a Christian professor, like a professor at a Bible college or Christian college. Um, fell in love with writing and and um kind of academia, but then the last, I would say maybe the last 10 years, I've, I've tried to bridge that gap um, a bit more between kind of the Christian academy um, and the average person, you know, in the streets or in the pews, you know, and, and in, in that journey, I've, I've been writing and speaking on what a lot of people would consider controversial issues, and, and I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't consider myself a very controversial personality necessarily, but um, I don't know. I just have been drawn to topics that people seem to fight over, and uh, I like to try to navigate, you know, maybe a, a better way to uh, converse about contentious topics. So the last, gosh, seven, eight years has been focused on. I've been focusing on uh, issues around sexuality and gender. So right now, I, I run an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Uh, I've been doing that for just over three years now, where we help uh, train church leaders uh, in how to. Uh, how to go about this conversation in a way that's maybe better than we've done in the past, one that's uh, saturated with biblical faithfulness, but also um, radical love towards people who have been marginalized and really hurt by the church. Absolutely. And that's exactly, I mean, you just segued right into that. That's exactly kind of what I wanted to talk with you about today is 
one of the questions that we get a lot, I work with young adult ministry uh, in both my church and then here within doubt. And one of the questions that, and one of the topics that comes up over and over again, and ones that at conferences that fill right up that people are just so hungry for, is the issues around sexual identity and gender and uh, same-sex marriage. I mean, there's, there's so many different topics within that one. But the one I want to kind of hone in on today is the topic of how do we reach out to our gay neighbor? And in around that topic, you know, how do we hold a, an orthodox position, what the Bible says, so truth, but also how do we speak the truth in love? Because like you said, we haven't done that conversation well. I think we typically either will be on the one side of like, we'll give them the truth and a little bit of like, and we'll, we'll pretend it's love. So it's not actually love, right? So you're getting the truth. This is what the Bible says and there's no love or there's too much love and then there's no biblical truth. How do we, you know, how, how do we blend the two so that we can be loving and faithful? And so I guess to open this up in, in this discussion of reaching out to our gay neighbor, what do you think are some of the pitfalls as far as language that we should be communicating better? Yeah, I, I think the first thing to understand well, let me let me first of all say, you know, everybody's different. Every relationship's unique. There is no one size fits all. But um, in, in general, I think we need to understand the cultural context of where we're at. You know, the year 2020, uh, there's been decades of um, some really deep pain that LGBT people have experienced from from Christians. I mean, some of them have been flat out spiritually, physically, emotionally, sexually abused by the church. Um, you know, a best case scenario, uh, there's, you know, there's a good chance that if somebody is LGBTQ, uh, they've, they've had a really bad experience with, with Christians. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've met a gay person that has said, you know, I've never met a Christian that was kind to me. <laughs> so we, we're, we're, any kind of relationship that a Christian is trying to engage in with somebody who's gay, lesbian, transgender, there's a good chance. I'm not saying it's true of every case, but there's a good chance that that person, the LGBT person, is, has really had a bad taste of Christianity. So it's, it's not like we're coming at this just with a blank slate. So I think understanding that is really important. It'd be like going, you know, being a missionary to, you know, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but say some, let's just say you're a missionary to some country that was enslaved by Americans for decades. And this is, this is an extreme example, okay, but just for the sake of sure. illustrating the point, if you come in there, you, you kind of need to understand that okay, there's been decades of enslavement. Like if I just come and say, hey, I want to talk to you about our American ways, you know, they're going to be like, dude, get away from me. You're going to, you know, try to enslave me again. So, um, but, you know, understanding that that long history, I think is really important, which is why I think most gay and lesbian people, they, they've, they've heard Christians talk about the quote unquote truth, you know, what we believe. What they haven't experienced is our love, that we actually care for people that we believe I know, I know I've met some gay people that, you know, they think Christians don't even think that gay people are human. You know, it's like, gosh, where do they get that from? Well, they, they've had experiences where, where they've been so dehumanized that, you know, they, they might need to hear, you know, like, hey, you're a fellow image of God bearer and, you know, you bring value to this world. Um, you ask about language, though. Yeah, I mean, there's certain terms uh, that do create relational walls instead of relational bridges. Um, terms like homosexual. Most people I know use it innocently, but the, the term homosexual has been used by people in a really negative way over the years that for a lot of gay people, when they hear a Christian using the term homosexual, 
it just kind of builds a little relational wall instead of a bridge. Um, practicing homosexual, the gay lifestyle, or the gay agenda, these kind of really broad brush stereotypical phrases. Again, I'm not saying everybody uses these phrases as trying to be unloving, but it just, it comes off. It just, there's, these terms have a stigma to it that are unhelpful. Um, typically, I mean, rather than a term, just get to know the person's name and hear their story rather than try to categorize, you know, who they are, or try to put an identity on them. Just ask them who they are, ask them how they identify and, and honor, you know, the way they, they want to be referred to. Mm-hmm. So I guess in what you're getting at is there's, you want to open the discussion with engaging with the person. Yeah. Right? Like treat them as a person first. I think that's a, that's the way to go about it, right? It's, yes, we want to hold to, to true doctrine, but you got to remember that's a person on the other end there. All right. Well, and part of true doctrine is believing the most fundamental doctrine we believe about people is that all people are created in the image of God. That comes right out of Genesis 1. It's one of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. So it's not even like there's people here and doctrine here. It's like if you're true to sound doctrine, you will be loving towards people. I've often said, you know, our, our truth won't be heard until our grace is felt. <laughs> um, until people feel that we are a gracious people as Christians, um, that we are kind, that we want to embody, as Paul says, the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And until people feel that grace, they're not going to want to hear our truth. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. Jesus preached a really high standard of truth. I mean, he, he had a really high standard of obedience, but for some reason he was able to love people so well that people that were falling short of that standard wanted to be around him. So if, if Christians are like, well, the LGBT people are falling short of the Christian standard, okay, great, maybe, sure, but do they want to be around you? Because if not, then you're, you're not embodying Jesus as you ought, because people that fell short of his standard wanted to actually be around him and, and listen to him, and they felt loved and cared for by him. It seems to me like there's there's almost two debates, and one is same-sex marriage, reaching out to gay people within the church, right? So people who are trying to affirm this in the church. And then the approach of like, what about people who clearly aren't a part of church, never grown up in it, didn't want anything to do with it. I I guess I want to talk a little bit about the people who maybe might be on the margins, right? And that's kind of, you know, they, a lot of times, I think this comes from a place of fear with Christians trying to engage in this. Fear in the one sense of feeling inadequate to deal with the onslaught of, of the evil culture, that uh, and I, I use air quotes there because I think we we tend to view our world and say everything in it's bad and we try and like recoil. But th- there's the balance of that, but also looking at our culture and saying, well, it's also broken. Ought we not try and breathe life into it as well? So, what do you think are some of the reasons that we haven't done this well? Oh uh, yeah, that's a good question. That that would take up the rest of our time. I think unpacking that. You know, I. I think there is a tendency, the human heart, to stigmatize any kind of person or struggle or experience that's not your own. So if 5 to 10% of the population experiences some kind of same-sex attraction, there's debates about the percentage. Well, gosh, I mean, you know, at most, you know, 90, 95% of people don't have that. And so there's, there's already going to be a fear of kind of what they don't know. Also, I think there's been this kind of machismo, masculine kind of culture in America that the church has absorbed that that doesn't just disagree with, say, same-sex behavior, but sees it as just like a particularly bad 
sin, something that's so far out there, you know, and, and I remember growing up in a, a real kind of masculine church environment and I don't know where it came from, but I was, I feel like I was, I absorbed this narrative that I'm not just supposed to disagree with same sex relationships, but I'm supposed to be abhorred by the person. And I, I remember as a teenager meeting, you know, work at a restaurant and, and meet somebody who's gay and, and I actually thought they're kind of cool. Like I enjoyed being around them, you know, and, but I was like deep down, almost felt guilty about that. Like, no, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to despise this person, you know, even though everybody else in the restaurant was either heterosexually, you know, immoral or greedy, or they didn't care for the poor. I mean, everybody's yeah, yeah. in sin outside the church, but for some reason I didn't feel guilt. I, I, I didn't feel like I needed to be disgusted at them. Um, so I, I just, I don't know. I, I think there is just something in the air of the church that this is a particularly, not just bad sin, but like really intrinsically bad person, more bad than just, you know, we're all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. So um, I, I think we're moving beyond that. And, you know, in some circles, it's almost the opposite now. There's, you know, in some progressive environments, I think you might have this in Canada, you know, to be LGBTQ is, is it's almost like, um, you know. More uh, virtuous. Yeah, you yeah. know, and to be a white straight male is like, you're what's wrong with this whole yeah. world. You know, it's yeah. like, again, inv- everything's kind of changing and every environment's different. But again, from, from many LGBT people who grew up in the church, but they have had that stigma over them. And, and it's hard to, it's hard to live beyond that. I mean, again, I don't, I don't personally know any LGBT people who don't have this kind of internal shame built up in them that hasn't been, you know, just, you know, uh, compounded by the Christian message that not, not that, you know, when they do something wrong, that's a wrong thing, but they are intrinsically, you know, um, ugly before God just by, you know, their particular struggle. So, yeah, it's, it's, there's so many layers here, man. It's hard to unravel it all, but yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this then, as you have uh, spent time studying the scholarly, as you spent time really looking at the, the truth aspect of it in the Bible, right? Because Part of it is, yes, we're, we're dealing with the people. We're trying to love them well, right? We haven't done a good job at that. Um, and so that's something we need to improve on, getting to know the person. As you've looked at the truth side with the Bible, what, what really stood out to you? If you, if you can think of two arguments, because there's six verses in the Bible that, that mention homosexuality. And, and depending on uh, which commentators you read or which people t- take a, a different spin on it, especially with... Uh, our postmodern world where everyone has, like, you know, everyone's opinion is equally valid. How have you as a scholar been able to navigate that and been like, well, look, here's what the Bible says, and I got to reason with that. What what has really stood out to you as, as like, some of the things that you're like, man, I, I can't disagree with the scriptures on this? Yeah, that's good. That's good. I think, it, well, it's important to understand, because I'm, I'm primarily a, a Bible guy, and I'm primarily an academic, so I it's easy for me to race to like theological arguments. And, and I do that. I, I do that as thoroughly as I can. Um, it is important to understand though, that when we move from the kind of love or relational aspect into the theological aspect, we need to carry that posture with us because for most people that I know you know, that they just, it's just human nature. People see or believe what they want to. And for a lot of people to hold to an affirming view that, that the Bible affirms same-sex relationships, they just have, they have a massive heart for LGBT people, and they're sick and tired of seeing them be dehumanized by the church. So I think understanding that is like, you know, if all you do is combat argument for argument, 
you, you, typically people are holding on to those arguments for deeper reasons than just they laid them out unbiasedly and you know but so yeah you mentioned the six passages um and there are six passages that directly address and prohibit same-sex uh sexual relationships but i i, I think those are kind of secondary the primary question is what is marriage this is where most people, almost everybody I talk to just misses this fundamental question. The question isn't, why can't two people of the same sex get married? The question is, what is marriage? What is the definition of marriage? Now, um, in most secular Western nations, they, they, I'll say they, they define marriage as a union between two consensual adults. That's one definition of marriage. Um, it's a very recent Western secular definition. Doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's just that that's just a fact. Um, but historic Judeo-Christianity has always defined marriage as a one flesh union between two sexually different persons, not sexually in terms of sexual attraction, but two people of different biological sexes coming together. And we see this in Genesis one and two, they come together to form a one flesh union. And that, equality within difference they're both human but they're sexually different those are two essential ingredients in the biblical understanding of what a one flesh covenant union is now some people some might disagree with that like no i don't you know believe that but at least if you don't agree with that you have to at least state how you know well i always ask people three questions before we even get into this kind of debate you know number one what's your definition of marriage if you, if you say that marriage has, isn't, if you say that sex difference is irrelevant for marriage, then I'm going to say, okay, well, where did you get that definition from? You can't just assume that that's what marriage is. That, that's a very recent modern view. And then I would ask the third question, how does scripture inform your definition of marriage that, you know, it's just a consensual union between two adults? Because I just, you look at Genesis 2, you look at Matthew 19, Mark 10, Ephesians 5, and other passages, it's just... I don't know. From my vantage point, it seems that the Bible defines marriage as a union between two sexually different persons. So, so the, the, you know, the, the six prohibition passages, those are second, th those are there because those relationships are a departure from a biblical definition of marriage. Um, but the marriage question is the most important. Um, I think what you're saying about marriage, I mean, we do live in a, a very confused time about marriage. And it's almost like, the the idea that marriage is a, a legal contract, and I've I've been noticing this in more and more movies. Just funny enough, I just watched one uh, Netflix called Marriage Story, and the whole thing was basically these two people were unhappy in their marriage now, and it just goes through the painful divorce, um, and, and the whole thing about it costing them tons of money, and it, and like, and you know they, they're they're going bankrupt, lawyers are involved, and almost the 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 like the underlying message behind this was look. You have every right to be happy. Just don't get like locked in legally, right? To to this thing, right? Like just you know, find expression and, and your love, sexual expression, sexual gratification, whatever that looks like, uh, wherever he would want. And it, it felt to me like a very individual, you yeah. know, individualized expression of what marriage is. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I think you're dead on. I mean, um, the secular view. Um, and I don't, I, again, I don't, if somebody's listening and they're not a Christian, I don't say secular in a demeaning way, just, you know, somebody who doesn't hold to the, you know, the values of, the, of Christianity. But there, I mean, in the West, you know, Europe, North America, um, the, the ethic, especially the sexual ethic is, you know, don't harm anybody, make sure it's consensual. 
And if you, those two things are in place and if it brings you pleasure, then go for it, you know, which is why, you know, you have a heavy emphasis on, on romance and desire in, in marriage, which is also why you have such a high divorce rate, because if the foundation of marriage is consensuality, don't harm anybody. Um, if it feels good, do it. Um, then, and, and, you know, uh, if you're romantically attracted to this person, sexually attracted, then go ahead and get married. And when those things wear off, <laughs> which most of the time they do, then it's like, well, it's, it's not there anymore. The, 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 the emotions aren't there anymore. The romance isn't there anymore. Hey, do you agree? That's split up. Okay. Yeah, I agree. It's consensual. We don't have kids, you know, so it's not hurting anybody. And sometimes kids are involved and that raises a bigger question. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, th I think that all these things go, go hand in hand. I mean, you're, whatever your sexual ethic is, your marriage ethic, your relationship ethic, um, it's, it's going to, it's going to tremendously affect how you practically live, you know? And, and I do fear that, I mean, you know, I, the way, even the way I defined marriage earlier, I think a lot of Christians wouldn't necessarily define marriage that way. I think a lot of Christians define marriage as, oh, you fall in love, it's consensual. And, and for some reason we think it should be between a man and a woman, but they don't have a lot of Christians. I don't think have a real worked out reason why that is, uh, why it has to be between a man and a woman. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, all these things are all intertwined with each other. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, you even referenced that a little bit in your book where you're saying there was a guy, you, you sat next to him on a plane and you're like, I'm writing a book on homosexuality. And he's like, Oh, it's, it's completely wrong. And, and the yeah. guy's a Christian. And you're like, well, what do you, what verses like, tell me why you think that is. And, well, it just is. I've read them. You yeah. Know? And, uh, <laughs> You know, maybe it's, I think part of it is engaging in, in this discussion, which is such a, a deep and sensitive discussion. Do you think that Christians should be more prepared before getting involved with that? Because, again, bringing it back to one of the difficulties of sharing um, our faith with people who are non-Christians and people who um, would identify as gay, right? We, we don't know our faith well enough, and so we're scared that, like, they're going to ask questions that we can't answer, and they're going to have rebuttals that make us look like a bigot and feel, and that's going to take away from any sort of progression in this friendship or this relationship to win them to Christ. Do you think that Christians are, are just ill-informed? Um, some are, some aren't. Um, I think traditionally, yes. I think um, conservative Christians have done a good job rehearsing what they believe but not analyzing why they believe it and that, i mean this is a bigger problem just across the board i think it's um i do think there's a lot of fear driving uh at least some christians maybe a lot of christians that you know you have these, this doctrinal statement and this is what we believe and but if you are pushed on you know well why do you believe that what about this what about that verse sometimes people get nervous you know and and i think we need to have no fear like let's let's look at what the text of scripture says about these things let's let's um, as, as Martin Luther, rec, you know, recommended that let's always take our views and put them back to the text of Scripture to make sure, sure that we are following what the Bible actually says. Now, when a—I mean, some of the most intelligent, biblically knowledgeable people I know are gay Christians, <laughs> um, because they've had an urgency to read tons of stuff on this topic and to think critically through it and— rarely have I met a gay Christian. Even when I say gay Christian, I'm not assuming they even believe in same-sex relationships. They can be same-sex attracted and still follow a traditional sexual ethic. But either way, if, if they grow up in the church and they are same-sex attracted, most, if not all the ones I have 
come across have spent many hundreds of hours reading and thinking and thinking and reading and researching and talking. So it, it can be frustrating for them when they do meet, I don't know, a conservative Christian and, um, and that all that person can do is like quote Romans one as if this gay person who spent hundreds of hours researching the Bible doesn't know what Romans one says. Right. You know? And the whole point of Romans one is to get to Romans two and three. Romans two is like, you know, look, you hypocrite, don't you dare judge the Romans one person because you're also that person. And by the time it gets to Romans three, it's like, you know, we're all sin and falling short of the glory of God. Thank you for Jesus who rescues all of us. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think that has also been a frustration when Christians typically conservative, those on the more conservative end, when they give thin answers to thick questions, it can be really frustrating for somebody out of deep urgency, and even reverence for Scripture has spent so much time studying this, get this kind of pat, superficial answer. Um, and I think people have moved beyond that. I mean, my whole ministry is is based on churches wanting us to come out and help them to think through these issues, and we're booked out for a long time. So, I mean, there's a lot of churches that are are wanting to engage this conversation much more thoroughly, which is gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Back to, I guess, the original question. How do we reach out to our gay neighbors? Let's just picture a scenario here. We have someone, a young adult, and they're in their class. You know, they're trying to be a light for Christ in a secular university. One of the people in their group uh, is a, you know, maybe they'll talk about religion, has some sort of knowledge of the Bible, but is an outwardly professing, is living, like would identify as gay, lives that way, perhaps. Say the student comes to you and says, Preston, how, help me be able to share Christ and, and walk with this person? You know, what, what kind of advice or counsel would you give to this student? Yeah, that's good. That's a great question. You know, like with any relationship, I mean, there has to be a good level of trust as a foundation. You have to have a lot of relational collateral for somebody to even invite you into their the intimate parts of their life to, to where they're going to trust you for that guidance. So, um, I would say if you really want to walk with somebody in this, in, in, within their sexuality, helping them to pursue Christ in that, I would say begin by being a really, really good listener. Also, show that you have, you need to demonstrate a lot of humility too. And this is where a lot of Christians go wrong. They think they need to have all the right answers just right away, you know, and if they ask them something, boom, give them the right answer. But for a lot of younger people, they, they actually don't trust people when they come off as having all the right answers at every question, you know. So even being able to say, you know, I'm not sure about that. You know, let me, I'll, let's walk together and search the scriptures on that. And just having that real humility and, and grace that makes the person want to not just be around you, but, but to trust you. And also giving the person space to wrestle on their own. This is the number one thing I've heard from people who, you know, were part of the LGBT community and got saved, and now they're walking with the Lord. They said, you know what, this pastor, this friend, this Christian that I met, they gave me space to wrestle. They didn't cram it down my throat. They didn't demand that I would sign off on all the right doctrine right away. I, one of my good friends who's on fire for Jesus said they— you know, my past, this pastor who reached out to me, he, he gave me like two years of, you know, he would never even bring it up. Only when I brought up, hey, what do you think the Bible says about LGBT stuff? Then he would very graciously address it, but he, he gave me space to kind of wrestle. I mean, genuine belief has to come from within. It can't come, it can't be forced from without. So, yeah, just not being scared to, you know, let the person wrestle out loud. Um, and they're not going to be where they 
need to be right away. We none of us are. Sanctification doesn't happen overnight. So just being able to give that same kind of grace to people who are wrestling with their sexuality. So yeah, so I think uh, listening, humility, give people space. Those are three key things I would I would advise somebody to do. Yeah, and that sounds like just three aspects of being a good friend. Right. No, this is it. I, yeah. I forgot to say this. It's like, how do we manage other relationships? Anyway, how, how would you want to be related to by somebody who wants to walk with you? For some reason, when it comes to this conversation, it's like we forget how we act normally around other people and think that, you know, it's, I, it's something totally different. I appreciate that insight there. Any other final comments on this discussion? As people, you know, have been reaching out to you and your organization, what are some of the, the things that you like to leave people with as we try and reach out to our gay neighbors well? Well, you know, I hesitate giving advice because I often say my Canadian friends are five, ten years ahead of where we're at as a country. So I would almost be tempted to flip it around, you know. <laughs> Can you Canadians help us, you know, because you guys are further down the cultural road than we are. But in general, you know, I would say silence just isn't an option. I mean, meaning like, no longer is this just some fringe discussion that you can avoid. I mean, if you're a Christian who's serious about their faith, who is leading others in some capacity, you've got to read a few books on this topic. You've got to get your mind around it. Questions related to faith, sexuality, and gender are among the most pressing ethical questions facing the Western church today. Silence isn't an option. Maybe 10 years ago, you can kind of avoid it, and there's always other things I'm going to put, but now it's like, I don't, I mean, I don't want to say every Christian, but almost every Christian should feel the urgency to, you know, become somewhat informed of this conversation. Also in that, while the LGB conversation is kind of, might be new to some Christians, I mean, that, that ship has kind of sailed for, for a lot of people. I think we really need to understand the, the T aspect of this conversation, the gender conversation, the transgender, non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer uh, the list goes on. I think that the questions surrounding gender or even who we are as humans, th- those are kind of front and center right now. So um, let's make sure we don't only spend our energy on the same-sex conversation. Let's make sure we understand the transgender-related conversation as well. I think what you're right, like just to tie a bow on this, the, the idea of having a, a good understanding, um, I would encourage our listeners to start reading books on marriage. Maybe pick up a, find a, dust off a theology textbook and say what we're or early writers, like, what is the purpose of marriage? What What is the, you know, the symbolism of marriage? Uh, is it maybe a good place to start as we branch out of here? Yeah, yeah. Well, Preston, thank you for your time. And yeah. uh, we appreciated having you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I hope that this conversation was able to give you some more insight into this subject and that it helps you as you go about your day-to-day in our cultural climate. And it was such a good opportunity to have Preston join us and really get into what it should look like to not just think about this issue, but to engage with our neighbors who may be in the LGBTQ community. If you have any questions, you can reach out to us or you can go to Preston's website at www.prestonsprinkle.com. And you can also take a look at his ministry, Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And for more information, you can check it out at centerforfaith.com. This has been a really great time to focus on our LGBTQ neighbors and how we can respond with truth and love from a biblical standpoint. 
I hope that you join us again next week as Preston is with us for a second time, continuing the conversation on some important topics that we're facing in our culture, like polyamory and the discussions surrounding the relationship between sex and technology and how we as Christians should be thinking about that specific subject. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.